Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament, which means it's in the, the second half of your Bible. It comes right after the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at this letter together this morning. You can put your thumb there, and we'll read in a minute. In a New York Times article, journalist Nicholas Kristof asks this question. He asks, what does it mean to be a Christian in the 21st century? Can one be a Christian and yet doubt the virgin birth or the resurrection? In the article, Kristof goes on to say, I deeply admire Jesus and his message, but I'm also skeptical of the resurrection. Is that an essential belief. Decades earlier in the 1950s, a man by the name of Rudolf Boltmann, he was a theologian, espoused the idea that we should demythologize the Bible, which was a fancy word to say that we should remove all of the miraculous and supernatural aspects of the Christian faith, that, that we know better now, that those things were believed at a certain point in time when everyone believed those things, but we no longer believe those things, and show, so we should remove those things out of our faith. Maybe that resonates with you. Maybe like Christoph and Boltmann, you, you admire Jesus' teaching of, of love. You admire his compassion, but you aren't sold on the idea that he was the son of God who was truly and bodily raised from the dead. Or maybe you sit in here this morning having been raised in the church. Maybe you've grown up a Christian. The, the resurrection is, is familiar language to you, but you haven't stopped to actually consider and contemplate its significance. Why does it matter? In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller writes this. He says, sometimes people approach me and say, I really struggle with this aspect of the Christian teaching. I like this part, but I don't think I can accept that part. He says, to this I usually respond, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Scholar N.T. Wright agrees, stating that the question of Jesus' resurrection lies at the heart of the Christian faith. In other words, what I'm saying is that the, the reality, the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the point on which the whole Christian faith balances. According to the New Testament and its writers, everything hinges upon the resurrection. We confessed this earlier. We're going to read it now. The Apostle Paul, in this letter to the Corinthians, writes this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to pick up in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. 
Paul in these verses to the Corinthians says the following. He says that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and then he appeared to multiple eyewitnesses after his resurrection. And Paul calls this the message of first importance. He says this is at the heart of Christianity. It is critical. It is foundational. You do not have Christianity without the death, burial, resurrection, and appearance of Jesus Christ. David Garland says the resurrection is the keystone that if removed, the whole gospel will collapse. In other words, if you take the resurrection away from Christianity, what you do not have is a Christianity remaining. You have something entirely different. You have something altogether different. Christians are people of the resurrection. We are resurrection people. And that's what makes this day so significant. Easter is resurrection day. It's the day on the church's calendar. It's the day in the year where we specifically draw attention to this fact that we believe Jesus Christ really and truly and bodily, physically, rose from the dead. So this morning, I want us to consider for just a few minutes the resurrection, and I want to look at it from three different perspectives or angles. So consider it with me, first of all, from an historical vantage point. Let's consider the resurrection from an historical vantage point. The Christian faith is based upon this claim that a man named Jesus, who was from Nazareth in Galilee claimed to be God's Messiah, and because of that claim was ultimately crucified, killed, buried, and put in a grave on a Friday about 2,000 years ago. And nonetheless, by Sunday morning, he was no longer in that tomb, but was alive physically and bodily and appeared to multiple eyewitnesses. N.T. Wright says that there is no form of early Christianity known to us that does not affirm at its heart that after Jesus' shameful death, God raised him to life again. If you go back and you read not only the New Testament, but you read extra-biblical sources of history, what you'll find is that every early following of Jesus, every sect, every Every church believed that Jesus truly and bodily rose from the dead. It is an historical claim that cannot simply be dismissed as myth or as legend. And it is not presented to us in the New Testament allegorically or spiritually. What is presented to us is that Jesus truly rose from the dead. It's it's presented to us as fact. That's how the writers intend for us to read it. What's interesting is that even... Even the Jewish historian Josephus, who was not a follower of Jesus, records for us in his writing Antiquities that at this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus. And his conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. This is fascinating. Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us there are many people who followed Jesus, and even after Pilate condemned him to die, they continued to be his disciples. Why? Josephus tells us. Because they reported that he had appeared to them after his crucifixion and that he was alive. 
Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians that Christ appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve, and then at one point to 500 people at one time. And then Paul adds this ever important detail, this phrase, most of whom are still alive. At the time in which Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, he says that many of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection were still living. Why is that significant? Presumably for the express purpose of saying to the doubters of Paul, if you don't believe me, you should go talk to one of them because they're still around. They're here and they can tell you themselves how they've seen the risen Christ. Now, now some in, in contention to this have concluded that, well, they all hallucinated. They, they, they all saw something that they thought was Jesus, but it wasn't really Jesus. But this is fascinating because... From what I understand of science, hallucinations are a very personal thing. There's no such thing as group hallucinations. If someone has a hallucination, that is unique to them. But here Paul tells us 500 people saw the risen Christ simultaneously. You have to do something with that. In a court of law, two to three eyewitnesses is considered substantial. If you have two to three people that can corroborate a story, it is substantial witness in a court of law. What do you do with 500? When it comes to Jesus' resurrection, the burden of proof is not solely on Christians to give evidence that it happened. The resurrection also puts a burden of proof on its non-believers. Pastor Tim Keller explains that it is not enough to simply believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead. You must come up with a historically feasible alternative explanation for the birth of the church. You have to provide some other plausible account for how things began. To this point, N.T. Wright argues that we cannot explain why the church continued to believe that Jesus was the Messiah if he had simply been executed by the Romans. The crucifixion of a Messiah did not say to a first century Jew that he was the true Messiah and that the kingdom had come. It said the exact opposite. It said that he was not and that it had not. And so granting that Jesus of Nazareth was certainly crucified as a rebel king, we are bound to regard it as extremely strange that the early Christians not only insisted that he was actually the Messiah, but they reordered their worldview, their praxis, their stories, their symbols, and their theology around this belief. Do you hear what N.T. Wright is saying? He's saying that it is an awfully strange thing that a man who was killed became the leader of a growing movement. You understand this, that Jesus was not the first man to show up in the first century claiming to be Messiah. There were others who came along claiming to be God's Messiah. There was this great anticipation in the nation of Israel for the Messiah to come, for God's promised one, his rescuer to, to show up. And so many men showed up claiming to be a Messiah. But you know what happened to each one of them? They were eventually killed for that claim. And do you know what happened to all of their disciples shortly after they were murdered? They all disappeared. But this fascinating thing happens with Jesus. He makes the claim that he's Messiah. He's crucified as a rebel king. And instead of the movement going away, it explodes. It was like gasoline on a fire. Suddenly, there are more and more and more believers in Jesus than there have ever been 
after his crucifixion. And that's because something very different happened with Jesus' death. He rose from the grave. See, you can go to the green dome where Muhammad's bones are buried. And you can go to India and see where Buddha's ashes were sprinkled. And you can go to China and visit the grave of Confucius. But, but if you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, do you know what you'll find? You'll find a garden tomb with a stone rolled away and you'll find no body inside of it. There is, there's not a, 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 a body in the grave of Jesus. And it's because... Jesus rose from the dead. There is, there is no other religion whose founder has an empty tomb. Only in Christianity do you have its, its leading mover, its, its founder, resurrected from the dead. This is what distinguishes Jesus from others who claim to be Messiah. It's that after he was crucified, he was raised, and he appeared to multiple eyewitnesses over the next 40 days. And so... I would invite you to, to consider this, to wrestle with this, to do something with this. We, what we must not do is try to accommodate Christianity to make sense without the resurrection. It, it lives or dies, no pun intended, by whether or not Jesus truly and physically rose from the grave. It lives or dies based upon the historicity of Christ's resurrection. And so we need to consider it from an historical standpoint. Secondly, we need to consider it from a significance standpoint. Let's consider the resurrection from a significance standpoint. What I mean by this is that the resurrection has consequences. There are implications to the resurrection. The Apostle Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's pick up in verse 12. He writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul writes these words to a church in debate over the resurrection of the dead. There were some in the church in Corinth saying that there was no resurrection of the dead. And so Paul wants to make it explicitly clear to this church, if what they're saying is true, if it's true that there is no resurrection from the dead, if it's true that Christ, not even Christ was raised, then I, I want to break it down for you and help you understand if the resurrection is not true, what that means. Paul says four things. He says, if the resurrection is not true, first of all, he says, Christianity is empty. He says, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The whole point of religion is to connect to God. That's why we practice religion. It's to connect with God. So follow the logic here. 
Paul is saying if Jesus is dead, the claim of Jesus was that he was the son of God, that he was God incarnate. So if, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, if Jesus is still in a tomb in Israel, then our God is non-existent. Which means that preaching is in vain. What are we doing this morning if Jesus is not alive? This whole enterprise, this whole experience, this whole practice, this is, this is meaningless. What are we hoping to accomplish? Paul says your faith is in vain. In other words, faith without an object is powerless and pointless. In our culture, we talk a lot about faith. You just got to have faith. You need more faith. The question is faith in what? Faith needs an object. Faith without a substantive object is, is pointless. And so what Paul is saying here is if, if the object of your faith is dead, then Christianity is, is empty. It's empty of power. As Pastor Ricky Jones puts it, if the resurrection isn't true, Christianity is simply a bunch of bedtime stories. It's absolutely worthless. Paul says something else, though. He says, not only, if the resurrection is not true, not only is it empty, if the resurrection is true, Christianity is misleading. It's misleading. He says, we're found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, the Christian faith is a lie. The true God needs to be found somewhere else. And so I want to make this easy for you. If you don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, this book is lying to you, or that's your claim, and you would, do, you would do well to go somewhere else to find truth and to find God. That's what Paul says here. If Christ was not raised, Christianity is a lie, and it's time to find another religion. Thirdly, he says, if Christ was not raised, Christianity is powerless. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those who have died in Christ have perished. That means they're, they're gone forever. What Paul is saying here is that if Jesus is not alive, you are still dead in your sins. See, Paul connects the resurrection directly to the death of Christ. The claim is not just that Christ died, but that Christ died for our sins. He died in our place as our substitute. He, he died to offer us forgiveness by taking the just punishment for sins upon himself. But if Christ remained dead, then that payment was incomplete. I like the way propaganda puts it. He says, Christ made a payment for sin with his death. And at the resurrection, we all cheered because that means the check cleared. If Christ has not been raised, then the payment didn't go through. The check bounced. The credit card didn't work. You need to swipe it again. If Christ was not raised, then we, when we die, are gone forever or we are eternally separated from the Father. If Christ was not raised, Christianity is powerless over our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Fourthly, if Christ was not raised, Paul says Christians are pitiful. If in this life only we have hope, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that altruism falls short. That, that the mere practice of the virtues and experiences of religion by themselves, if Christ was not raised, is empty and it falls short. It doesn't really accomplish anything. 
So don't waste your energy. The most pitiful thing in the world is to live and to suffer for a lie. I've heard some people say before, you know, even, even if Jesus wasn't raised, I would still choose to be a Christian because it's the best way to live my life. And the Apostle Paul completely disagrees with you. He says, that, he says if Christ was not raised, what, what are we doing with our lives? The Apostle Paul said, all who wish to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. The, the repeated refrain in the New Testament is that if you follow Jesus, you're going to suffer. Jesus said, any man who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Christian life is, is, is a life marked with persecution and suffering. The only thing that makes it worth it is that Christ rose from the dead. And if we are in Christ, we will rise too. And we will reign with him forever. Our, our hope in this life is not our best life now. Our hope is in the life to come. So Paul says, if Jesus was not raised, if the resurrection is not true, what are we doing? But he goes on and he says, but if the resurrection is true, then just the opposite of what I just said is the case. Christianity is not empty of meaning. It is full of meaning. If, if, if Jesus is raised from the dead, then preaching is not in vain and singing is not in vain. Our, our practices are not in vain. We are full of meaning and significance this morning if Jesus is raised from the dead. If Jesus is alive, then he is the son of God who showed us what the father is truly like. And he is how we can know God. And our faith is not wasted energy. Jesus is, is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our lives. You can trust a man who called his shot, who said, man, this temple will be destroyed. And in three days, it'll be rebuilt. You can trust a man who calls his shot and follows through. Jesus defeated death, which means he can handle any problem you and I face. Ricky Jones says the resurrection is what separates Jesus from everyone else who ever set foot on this earth. You can trust Jesus. Secondly, Christianity is true. If Jesus truly rose from the dead, then Christianity is true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. If this man rose from the dead, then that is true. Tim Keller again. If Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all that he said. Thirdly, if Christianity is true, then Christ, or if Jesus rose from the dead, then thirdly, Christianity is powerful. Jesus does have power over Satan, sin, and death. The payment was accepted. Forgiveness is available. Eternal life is offered to all who would trust in him. Jones says, a myth won't save you. A legend won't change you. But a living savior with a body will change you. And if you believe that, you can transform hopelessness into a hope that cannot be extinguished. Which leads to this last thing. If, if the resurrection is true, Christians are not pitiful. Christians are the opposite of pitiful. I, I, I looked up a word to contrast with pitiful, and here's what came back. Cheerful, glad, good, hopeful, Joyful. If Jesus truly rose from the dead, then we, above all people, are most cheerful and most hopeful. We have every reason to sing and to celebrate. We have every reason to have hope, even in our darkest of days. Why? Because Jesus is alive. And this leads me to my last point, which is this. Does this characterize your life? 
just gladness and hope and joy characterize you? Or are you marked more as a person without the hope of the resurrection? Pitiful. See, we need to not only consider the resurrection from an historical standpoint and a significant standpoint, we we also need to consider it from a personal standpoint. Are you living by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How is the resurrection shaping your life? So let me phrase it this way. What are you right now hoping in for life and peace? Paul points us to place our hope in the resurrected Christ. Verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. This language of firstfruits is is the image of what's happening right around this time of year as, as trees begin to bud Flowers began to start to bloom. Those first fruits on the tree are the promise of more to come. And Paul says Christ's resurrection from the dead is a testimony of more resurrection to come. What happened to him will happen to all those who belong to him. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too shall we if we are found in him. Do you hear the contingency, though? If the promise of the resurrection, of new life, of eternal life with God, of hope and of joy, is for those who, Paul says, belong to him. See, Paul mentions two heads over the human race in this passage. He mentions Adam and he mentions Christ. And the question is for each of us this morning, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? He says the, through the first man came death. Adam brought sin into the world. He brought death into the world. He brought destruction into the world. He brought brokenness into the world. And all of us are naturally born into that family. We are all under the order of Adam by virtue of our birth. But Christ came to be our new head. And through his resurrection, he offers a new way of being in the world. Not of death, but of life. Not of brokenness, but of restoration and hope and healing and eternity. And so the question for each of us this morning is, have we, have you appropriated the power of the resurrection by faith in Jesus? The question is, how do I get from from Adam to Christ? How do I get out from underneath the order of Adam and get underneath the order of Christ? And the answer is, by faith in his death and resurrection. By placing your trust and your allegiance squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus. By putting your trust in him, you go from death to life. You go from Adam to Christ. You go from pitiful to rejoicing. And if you've done that, I want you to hear this, church. Resurrection life begins now. We don't have to wait till we die to experience resurrection life. We don't have to wait till Jesus comes again to rejoice in the reality of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul later writes to these same Corinthians and he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He or she is a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. If we're in Christ, we are new. And we are participants in the resurrection. This is mysterious and it's, and it's wonderful. To the Galatians, Paul puts it this way. For I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. That old man, the order of Adam, has been crucified with Christ. We died to our old selves. We died to our old way of living. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We have been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection so that we can walk and live in resurrection newness of life. You can live in the power of the resurrection right now. And this means that where life seems to be dead and broken, the resurrection can come to bear and breathe new life. And hope can begin to bud and flourish. So maybe you're here this morning and your life feels more pitiful than hopeful. I have good news for you. Holy Saturday felt awfully pitiful. God felt awfully silent. But then Sunday morning came. And church, your Sunday morning can come by faith in the resurrected Jesus. Whether it's a sin struggle, whether it's marital conflict, the resurrection promises and offers the power of new life, the life of Christ in you. Jesus is alive and he is reigning. He is bringing all things in subjection to himself. He is making all things new. And he has promised that he will come again and complete what he has already started. So church, let us look to Christ as our victor, as our savior, as our living resurrected king. Let's pray together. Lord, to even pray is foolish if Jesus is not alive. And so in this moment, as, a, as an act of faith, we cry out to you to say, Jesus, we believe you're alive, that you have saved us from our sins by your payment on the cross and by your resurrection from the grave. Jesus, we believe in you, we trust in you, we hope in you, and we pray that the power of the resurrection would come to bear in our lives. God, make us new. And God, would the power of your resurrection go forth, not only in us, but through us, to a lost and dying world, to a pitiful world that needs the hope of resurrection power. Jesus, thank you that you reign as king, that you're coming back again. We anchor our feet squarely upon the reality of the resurrection. We're putting all of our chips in. All of our eggs are in that basket, God, because we know it to be true. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.